Osiris. This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com. Hi, this is Randy Backward from the Guess Who and BTO, and you are listening to Rock and Roll Archaeology. DIY and How Studios presents Deeper Digs in Rock, part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Now, on with the show. Hello, diggers. Welcome to Deeper Digs in Rock, a production of Rock and Roll Archaeology. Uh, Christian Swain here behind the mic at Aftermaster Studios in Hollywood today. Thank you once again for joining us. In Deeper Digs, we go a little further, dig a little deeper into specific topics that tie in with rock and roll history, the music, the culture, and the technology. It's the companion show to our episodic overview of rock history, the Rock and Roll Archaeology podcast. You know, the one that started it all. If you're not listening to our main podcast, uh, well, you are missing out. Okay, rockandrollarchaeology.com. Live it, love it, bookmark it. Um, tell a friend about it. Oh, and uh, some of you have been telling your friends. We want to thank all of you diggers out there for making us the number one music podcast on iTunes. The entire Rock and Roll Archaeology team are raising the infamous devil horns in your honor. Rock on. Okay, let's get to the show. Simon has been working in the music business since 1957, when he and Art Garfunkel first hit the charts with a one-hit wonder called Hey Schoolgirl, under the moniker of Tom and Jerry. Um, Paul was Jerry. Since then, Paul Simon has crafted an extraordinary number of hit songs, and more importantly, a few cultural-defining achievements in music. And he's still out there doing it at an incredibly high level. But it's funny, he just doesn't quite get the respect in the rock and roll pantheon that perhaps he should. He's not thought of in the way of, say, uh, Dylan or Neil or Bowie or Bruce are, and certainly not with the surnames of Lennon and McCartney. But should he? So we are thrilled to have Robert Hilburn with us today. He's got a new book out, Paul Simon, The Life. I'm going to call it authorized, because for the first time ever, Paul sat for over 100 hours of interviews, telling his recollections directly to Hilburn. Here's a little on our guest today. After 35 years as the lead music writer at the Los Angeles Times, Hilburn retired in 2005 to begin writing books about our mutual obsession, rock and roll, the people who make it and the time it inhabits. 
The Paul Simon Bio is Robert Hilburn's third book since retiring. First up was 2009's Cornflakes with John Lennon and other tales from a rock and roll life. The well-received Johnny Cash, The Life, came next in 2013. We leaned heavily on that book in Episode 5, The Ballad of Bob and J.R. of our main podcast. We sat down with Mr. Hilburn to discuss the life and work of Paul Simon. Well, well, mostly. We've been reading Robert for decades, so of course we veered off on some tangents. Uh, but it was all in the service of music, I promise. At 76, Paul Simon is winding down his long-performing career. The Homeward Bound tour will probably be his last big tour. Quick aside, uh, as luck would have it, I was able to catch the show at the Hollywood Bowl the night before our interview with Mr. Hilburn, and it was great. Of course, I did enjoy the hits, but I think I liked some of the deep cuts even better. I especially loved a nice intimate segment he did accompanied by only a string quartet. But taken together, it was a wonderful show. Okay, uh, let's meet the author of Paul Simon, The Life, who, by the way, is just a genuinely nice fellow, a real old school gentleman. Let's meet Robert Hilburn. Well, hello, Robert Hilburn. Welcome to Deeper Digs in Rock. Let me get the diggers uh, just a little on you, and then we'll jump into our big topic today, Paul Simon. So you're first and foremost known as the pop music critic for the Los Angeles Times. And after 35 years, you leave at the start of uh, the digital disruption in the news business. So my first question is, um, was it prescient or was it just time to go? You know, that was the hardest decision, Christian, I made in my life. Uh, I love being at the L.A. Times. I got to go everywhere. You two in Dublin, Bob Dylan in Israel, Paul Simon in Zimbabwe, Elton John in Moscow. I made every year for 30 years, I went to London for a week looking for new acts and so forth. It was a fantastic time. Uh, I was, I, you know, I did maybe a dozen interviews with Dylan. I interviewed everybody important, Springsteen, over and over again, because my goal was always to write about artists who I thought would still be worth knowing about 10 and 20 years from now. I didn't care who was number one in the charts. I wanted to write about the significant artists of our time. And you can imagine, I got letters by the ton. Another story about Springsteen. Oh, my God. I know Bob Dylan's great, but we need to talk to him again. All right. So, so I love that job. But things, as you hint at, things were changing, mm -hmm. okay? And I realized slowly that this wasn't the same job anymore. Mm -hmm. The digital internet impact made some people at the paper more excited about you finding out that Britney Spears missed her plane at the airport than if you had found the new Bob Dylan. Plus... There weren't the new Bob Dylans coming up anymore. Yeah. Uh, music changed. American Idol, I always point 
my finger at American Idol because that took away the importance of songwriter. It was now a vocalist, okay? And people were responding to that. Then all these other TV shows come along. There's no way Bob Dylan, Paul Simon, John Lennon could have ever competed on those shows because they were unique talents. They weren't fitting into the mode of what artists, audiences expected. So I said, now, look, if I stay here, I'm going to end up writing about interviewing the runners-up on American Idol. What's your philosophy of music? There is no philosophy. There is no philosophy. <laughs> no, at least the, right. I said I cared about. I yeah. cared about songwriters and, and and social commentary and moving forward. So that was my – that was I said I've got to leave and I, I, I want to write books. Yeah, yeah. So oh, – That's a long that, – that's, no, that's a great answer. Okay. I, and uh, we uh, completely agree. Okay. Uh, so in 1985, you published Springsteen uh, – uh, the uh, Springsteen bio. Springsteen. Right at the apogee of his cultural uh, relevance. Uh, why not another book until 2010 when you wrote Cornflakes with John Lennon and other well, the, tales from uh, a rock and roll life? Part of it was confidence, I think. You know, just because you can be a critic at a newspaper doesn't mean you can write a 300 page book, okay? So I said, look, I've got the best job in the world. I've seen so many people try other things. Paul Simon trying a movie, and you say, you know, I don't want to foul up on something. And Springsteen, that book came by accident. Jan Winter of Rolling Stone phoned me one day and said, we're doing a series of books on, I think they did The Beatles, Sinatra, Elvis, and we're going to do one on David Bowie. And I said, really, that's interesting, but why don't you do one on Bruce Springsteen? You know, it seemed to me this guy was, was the biggest star in the world yeah. at the time. And, right. and Jan said, well, let me think about it. Two weeks later, Born in the USA came out. Explodes! Yeah. I get a phone call back from Young Winter, and he <laughs> now it's he obvious. Did, he does not mention the first phone call. He says, "How oh, about it's his idea now? How about doing a book on Bruce Springsteen?" And but I only had six weeks to do it. You know, I had mainly had to go from my, what I knew about him. I, I did one interview with him, so that was the first book. But at least it broke the ice, right, okay? Right, but right. I still never considered it a real book, so I kept waiting and waiting. I mean, plus, I didn't have any time. I was always spending time at the paper trying to find a great new actor writing about this and that. But but by the time 2005 came along, okay, I want to write about uh, artists. Who do I want to write about? That's the big decision. And, but I just took the same philosophy I had at the time. People who would be – you'd still want to know about 10, 20 years ago, although I put 50 years as the, as right, the time. Right, right. Now it's time so to look were, like that. And mm-hmm. there's not a lot of people, when you think about that, mm. that fit that. Mm-hmm. Plus, you've got to have an interest in the artist. You don't want to spend three years writing about somebody that you don't care about, okay? So <laughs> no. it's got to be significant, <laughs> right. somebody you care about, and somebody you think a large number of people care about, rather than trying to find a cult figure and, you know, doing a book on that. I'd rather write about somebody that I think there's an audience for, uh, and there were only like seven people. And I don't want to ever mention that list who was in the seven people. But Johnny Cash was one. And I had been with him at Folsom Prison when he did the in Folsom Prison. 68, concert. right? 68. That yeah. was amazing. I was just yeah. trying to get How in How did you get into well, this? Well, I was trying. Well, I wasn't in jail. I was just trying to get. That's an important fact to, to make sure we know. Well, the yes. funny thing is Johnny Cash had done an earlier uh, concert, I think f- 1960 maybe, uh, at San Quentin. 
and Merle Haggard was actually in the prison. <laughs> he wasn't on the show because they late, they made her letter later met, and Merle says to John, "I was at San Quentin when you did that show," and John says, "I don't remember you being on the show." He says, "No, <laughs> no, I, wasn't no, I was the show. one of the I was audience. in the third row. I was in the third row. Uh, so uh, wow. that was so you got to have an interest in it. And uh, I had been there. I was trying to get a job at the LA Times, as a matter of fact. And yeah. they said, "Well, do yeah. a story. Let's see what you can do." Right. And I and Columbia. I was the only music writer there because Columbia Records had tried to make a prison album with Cash before that, and he showed up stoned. They had to cancel it. Mm. So they didn't want to invite press to this thing because they were afraid the same thing might happen. But I had uh, I knew a disc jockey who told me about the show, and Cash said it was okay to come, and that's how I kind of got in there and, and did the uh, story. All right. So uh, so you leave The Times, uh, and uh, the first book that you write is, uh, as I said, Cornflakes with John Lennon and other tales from a rock and roll life. So w- was this an attempt at ridding yourself uh, the years of all these special stories that you had built up and kind of shedding the skin of a reporter and writing 500 to 800 words. Uh, <laughs> no, it, it, in retrospect, that's a good answer. But I, it, I really, I was, I wanted to write a book. So I said, well, look, I'll start out, do the first book about something I know. Uh, I don't have to, you know, get the artist's estate or the artist. I don't have to do anything except write my book. Yeah. And I had all these stories that I wanted to tell about what rock and roll meant to me. And uh, that just seemed like a natural beginning. It would give me a chance to explore writing. Mm-hmm. And it's something I knew intimately and that I wanted to say to people. So that way it was kind of like a tra- uh, what do you, learning path or something. Right, right. So uh, so you were be- like uh, like taking your own personal writing class to go, okay, now let's expand this out into a book form. Okay, yeah, that yeah, makes the, perfect sense. Yeah, that's, the idea was good. The idea was to say what I thought was important in rock and what some of these artists were like away from the music. Mm-hmm. You know, that was the, the two combinations. Mm-hmm. And I enjoyed a lot. You know, I, I, in time I look back at it with more affection because at the, at the time I thought it was easy, you know, this and that. But I look at I've gotten so much coming over the years by people who like those stories. You yeah, know, it chronicled many, many great moments in rock and roll. Um, and I know I've read uh, hundreds of your articles growing up here in Southern California. And probably hated <laughs> some. Some, yes, uh, disagreed with how you treated Rush, but uh, you know, oh, no, uh, yeah, this, I, I used to be vicious on things like that. And, and the reason is, okay. I, I, I was I was trying to always divert people's attention to the great artists that I thought. Yeah. So if somebody else came up, I would say, look, don't waste your time, is what I'm saying to myself, on these guys. Mm-hmm. Don't want you to stay on Three Dog Night or Rush or you know, on and on and on. Uh, listen to Springsteen. Listen to Dylan. Listen to those. Listen to Randy Newman. That was more my goal because I wanted to, again, document the great artists of the time. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and let, let's see, you you actually became friends with uh, with John Lennon. Well, I, you know, friends is a word I, it's, it's a word I feel uncomfortable. No, it's, okay. it's probably accurate, but it's, mm-hmm. I feel uncomfortable because yeah. as a critic, you've got to maintain yeah. a distance. You never become chummy enough where you call people. Right. Phone, oh, John, did you just see this? Yeah. I never called John in my life. I, I never called Springsteen, never called Paul Simon. Uh, it's really, the, the time you saw him was almost always when you're doing a story on mm-hmm. him, you know, mm-hmm. and that was with John. But in John, I spent more time we, when he was living in L.A. in the 70s, just for six oh, months. Oh, the last so, weekend. Yeah, I spent, mm-hmm. I'd, 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 I saw him sometimes socially, mm-hmm. but that's as close as I probably ever got to breaking the, I only see him when I'm doing an interview. Yeah. 
Yeah. So um, in 2013, you write uh, what may now be the definitive book on one of the original pillars of rock and roll, Johnny Cash, The Life. Um, How and why did you choose Cash as your first subject to focus on for an entire book? Well, again, I was with with him at the beginning. I kind of kept track of me over the years. I saw the movie that was made, Walk the Line. Yeah, yeah, which With was Joaquin all, Phoenix, which yeah. largely fiction. Mm-hmm. You know, it's what June Carter wanted people to think. And I said, you know, Johnny Cash is going to be remembered. I, there had been a bunch of books written on Cash. He's going to be remembered fifty years from now. I want to write a book about him, and I want to do it. I don't. I, I'm not a fan of most pop biographies. I just don't think they get very deep into the artistry, particularly. I want to write a book about somebody. Not that he's a celebrity, but that he's a statesman almost. So I read David McCullough, who wrote about presidents. Doris Kern. Oh Go- yeah. Mm. Doris Kern yeah. Goodwin's A. Scott Berg. Mm-hmm. And how do these people, serious writers? treat their subjects. And I wanted to take that tone of writing about Cash. You know, the stories you tell, the part, what, what's in their life that's like, interesting. Like you, a real historian. Yeah. Because yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, that's what those folks are. They're, yeah, they're and, actual And, and also I wanted to see what things in their life. They're not looking for every tabloid incident and spend 10 no, pages. No. They're trying to give you a sense of who they were and why they're important. Mm-hmm. That's the thing that's often missing. The, the artistry is why Johnny Cash is important. The artistry is why Paul Simon... If they didn't write those songs and record those songs, they, no one would care about them. So let me get deep into those songs. What's behind those songs? And that was what uh, led me to Cash. I thought I asked his manager, Christian, as a matter of fact, I said, how much of the Johnny Cash story has been told? He said maybe 20%. I said, wow. So that's what, you know, that's what uh, got me going. Wow. So let's let's talk a little bit about your research. Um, you know, guys like uh, Nick Cohn, Lester Bangs, Robert Christgau, Um, We love those guys. We we love reading them. We use them in uh, as research in some of our shows. Um, but your work seems a, a little bit more journalistic, you know, for obvious reasons. Um, solid, backed up, and sourced. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you approach uh, your research for a subject? Uh, well, first of all, when you mention those names, Nick Cohen. Chris Gow particularly, I'm intimid- I always feel intimidated because those guys are great writers and stylists. Mm-hmm. I never consider myself a great writer and stylist, but they also put themselves into the story more. I never want to be in the story. I want to be partially because of my reporting training. Mm-hmm. I was a reporter before I was a music critic, which mm-hmm. is objectivity. You're not the story. The subject's the story. Right, right. So when I interview Bob Dylan or Paul Simon or Bono, all I'm doing, I'm trying to get as much out of them as true as what I feel is truthful and honest and illuminating as I can. Not and an easy I, job huh? with some of those. No, guys. no, no. And I'm sitting here in the middle, and the audience is on the other side. It's like a, a high or a bridge. I went from Dylan to the reader. Uh-huh. I'm not there. I'm. Not, you know, one of the things I really liked a review I got of this book said it reads like a memoir. Yeah, that's it perfect. Yeah. See, because I'm trying to present his point of view. This is Paul's official story. Yeah, this is Paul and, Simon's I'm, official biography. Well, now. no, but it's not that really that. That's a misunderstanding. I asked Paul if he would cooperate, mm-hmm. if he would talk to me. He's mm-hmm. never t- talked to a biographer before, mm-hmm. and he said yes, he'll talk to me and this and that. But it was always my control. He had no input over the con- the content of the book. Right. So it's not like he's not approving it. He's it's not authorized in that sense. But he cooperated and let me talk to him. If there's things he would, doesn't like about the book, but it's my book, okay? Mm-hmm. But that was my uh, goal was to kind of be that bridge where I'm not. And, and someone mentioned it read like the memoir, and I thought that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to make it feel like you're talking right to that person. You right. Know? Yeah. But, but again, I'm try- I'm not trying to Pray over praise that person or anything else. I'll criticize the music, but I try to present their own words so that a reader can hear them talking. 
so through the cash book, um, uh, that was so well received. Yeah. Uh, you know, you obviously got another fan, and that's uh, Paul Simon. Uh, and uh, you know, he's notoriously, as we just uh, talked about, uh, rejected uh, allowing his story to be told. So how did that happen? How how did you convince him to? kind of pull back the kimono a little bit. Well, I, I sit down. Remember, I had a list of seven people initially, okay, uh, on my list of who to write about. One of them was Bob Dylan. Now, Bob Dylan, is, you, you can't do a Bob Dylan biography until four or five years after his death because he's not going to talk to you and nobody around him is going to talk about it because he's got them all so intimidated, okay? Yeah, nobody, I've heard stories of nobody's like, don't even gonna, look at him. Nobody's going to talk mm-hmm. about him. And and, and what I, to my surprise, though, Christian, I found that I did the Johnny Cash story. It was five years after his death. And his family said, if you'd have come to us right after his death, we wouldn't have talked to you either. It takes time to get over that protection. So gradually, Dylan's family and people around him will see it as history rather than protection. So I said, okay, he's off the the list. And so Paul Simon now, because I love songwriting, okay? And I considered other, Joni Mitchell, I love Joni Mitchell. But the difference is nobody is like Simon has written, who is still writing in the 2000s with the same quality he had in the 60s. Everybody else has dropped off, maybe except Dylan. You can mm-hmm. put a question mark. Some people disagree about that. But uh, because I wanted to know the, the, the creative process, in, in a sense, I wanted uh, to talk how artistry comes about and equally important, how you protect it for all those years against fame. Decades, yeah. Fame yeah. can destroy your artistry. Mm-hmm. Wealth can destroy it. Marriage, divorce, drugs, fear of failure. And that's why McCartney drops off after a while. That's why Neil Young drops off after a while. That's why these artists, they're not doing as good a work now as they were doing before. Because either they've run out of energy or they've let distraction. Elvis was the great example. He let fame destroy him, okay? Mm-hmm. So, and, and Simon saw that early. And he was always saying, the music's the most important thing. I've got to keep getting better. I can't try to be as good as I was in the life. I've got to get better than that. And that was, so that really the sub-theme of my book is artistry and how you protect it. You know, you, you tell Simon's life, but what I was really trying to secretly get at was that other issue, which, which I think other songwriters can learn from that. You've got to be true to the music. You know, you can't have four hits and think I know it all. Simon walks away <clears throat> from Simon and Garfunkel oh, because... Yeah. At, at, the to- at the height of their career. Yes, can you yeah. imagine how that is? <clears throat> oh. And and Clive Davis says, Paul, it's the worst mistake you've ever going to make. And he says, I don't care. I'm, 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 I, I don't want to write anymore in that style. I'm burned out of it. If he'd have kept writing with Simon and Garfunkel... He would have burned out in the 70s, too, you mm-hmm. know, and he would mm-hmm. be doing like the Rolling Stones today, doing those old shows. Yeah. But he wanted, he saw that, on the hits. Right? He wanted to learn. He wanted to learn more about music. He wanted to be inspired by music and keep going. And that's the dramatic, you know, that's the most dramatic thing about him is he just avoided all the temptations. So you cite Mickey Mantle, Elvis, John F. Kennedy, and Lenny Bruce as Paul Simon's four great heroes. Uh, as I read the book, I kept coming back to one or more of them. It's like there's a little of each that make up Paul Simon. Is that fair? And and if so, how do each of them play into the mind of, uh, of Paul Simon? Well, see, Paul – Elvis, of course, was probably first, and he – 
that's what I want to be. I want to be in rock and roll. I want to be in music. I want to have audiences come to see me and so forth. And then John F. Kennedy was the idea of the world. Here's a person who can inspire everybody in the country. That's a great thing. And there's so much empathy in Paul's music. That's one thing that separates it from Dylan, let's say, and most rock and rollers. Most rock and rollers are talking about rebellion, mm-hmm. uh, change, social change, uh, attack almost. Self-confidence, uh, things like yeah, that. And, yeah. Paul, and Paul puts those things, social change, in there. But it's always in the sense of empathy. Once there, if I can, tell you, if I might jump ahead, uh, if he, he says often, if you look at the first line of my song, it's always the most truthful line in the song. And take "Bridge Over Troubled Water," which we all assume was him saying, being this wonderful guy, saying, "Look, if you have a problem, come to me, and I'll give you comfort." Mm-hmm. The first line is feeling weary, feeling small. He's breaking up with Simon and Garfunkel. He's isolated. He's unhappy. He's had all this success. He's unhappy. He says, I was weary. Mm-hmm. I'm five foot three. <laughs> I'm small. <laughs> yeah. He was looking for comfort. He wanted people to come and help him. See, but as a songwriter, you don't want to say that. So he just Flipped turns. it around. But that's right? what I love about right. the book. See, I never had read that before. Right. So you wanted, I wanted to know more about these songs. And that's a perfect example of Paul. The empathy in it. And how his 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 inspiration his goal was not to protest, not to uh, attack. It was to the empathy, and you can see it through Graceland, all these songs. But in that process, he's talking about the country, American tune, yeah. America, Mrs. Robinson. Yeah. But he never does it in the sense of protest. He says the worst thing you can do in a song is listen to it and say, "Ah, and the point is." You know, he never wants to. It's almost leave like it writing. Up to, leave it up to like the listener. Writing, right? It's like writing the biography. You yeah. don't want to say, "And the point is." You just yeah, want to tell. Here's the story. You you yeah, take you it decide, for what you, you decide. want. Right, and I just right. got a, I, I, I just got a great review, and it, and he took what. I said in the book, and he made his own thesis of what I was saying about Simon, you know, his motivation and everything. I got attacked in one review saying, oh, he never actually, like Freudian concept, why has Paul Simon kept going for all these years? I never kind of make some guess at it, because Paul doesn't know, his best friend from high school doesn't know, his former wife doesn't know, so how no, am I Yeah, to... how are you going to know, right? Yeah, right. I mean, that's what I say, I might be right, I might be wrong, right. but this guy read everything, I, I just want to put it on everything I know about Paul Simon, and you decide mm-hmm. as a reader, mm-hmm. and this guy did that, it was a great review, because I'm not sure he's right or wrong, but it was at least he made that jump. Yeah, know? yeah, yeah. So uh, we we add the, those four heroes that you start oh, off I'm with sorry, the book. Oh, I'm sorry, I did, yeah. You know, uh, you know, definitely Elvis, John F. Kennedy, uh, Mickey Mantle. Uh, he, he loved baseball. You oh, know, I, I think it. that some of the competitive nature of him <laughs> comes he, uh, he, from He that. was on the all, he was five foot two, he was on the all-star yeah, team yeah. in high school. He stole yeah. home. Stole home yeah, once, fantastic. right. He has right. a thing in his office, a picture of that, I mean, a, a copy of the newspaper article from that day yeah. saying Simon Steele's Steals home. home. Right, he right. loves baseball. He goes to games all the time. When I saw him at the Hollywood Bowl the other night, I walk in the dressing room after the show and he's got a baseball just throwing it up. He just loves <laughs> but, baseball. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's a, uh, a a great passion. Now, if we go to Lenny Bruce, Lenny Bruce, he's got, this great co- he's got a great comic sense, Paul, mm-hmm. and it frustrates him no end, Christian, that people don't pick up on the humor in his songs. Mm-hmm. You know, during Simon and Garfunkel days, he said he was making a joke with... Well, when you start off as Simon and Garfunkel, how do you... You wouldn't assume humor well, that's is, right. a, he is said, a, piece, he said, a big piece of it, you know? They were thinking... So there's this cultivated image already of, like, the serious yeah. Paul Simon. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And he hated that. In fact, he and Art one time were thinking of a title for the new record, and Paul said... 
so young and so unhappy. <laughs> but see, when you get to me and Julio, yeah. look at that yeah. humor. And Duncan, look yeah. at Duncan. Yeah. That's a, got a great humor. And he goes, 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover. Come on, uh, that's a hilarious yeah, yeah, song. Yeah, yeah. And, and in, 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 but he's dead. It's deadpan. It's not hidden. It's not, no, like, yeah. he's, it's not yeah. like he's pointing no. a finger to it. No. It's, again, no. letting no. the audience discover what yeah. this is. But, yeah. but that's what he, he wishes people would see the humor more. Yeah. I'm going to add a fifth hero, and that's his father, Lou Oh, of course. Yeah. Um, can he talk a little bit about their relationship? Yeah, you know the interesting thing about it is I interviewed Paul maybe five or six times at the Times, usually for an hour or two hours, and he was probably as articulate as anybody I ever interviewed. Mm. So I thought when I he said he said so you he do would, that right away. That was, yeah, he was quite an articulate. He uh, was great, and uh, so when I started interviewing him for the book. I started, I thought it was going to be easy, you know? I mean, I did a book on a Johnny Cash who was dead. Well. This was going to be easy. He's going to, he's like, I'm going to hold up an album and he's going to tell me everything about the album. But it's like, the first day he said, I don't, I don't care about that. You know, I don't know. Why, we, why is it important, you know, which song I wrote first on the album? Why is all this stuff? And he, he would give him two or three word answers. It was, you know, I'm thinking, what's going on here? And I realized he was in his recording studio. After about an hour, he said, Come on, let's go listen to the new music. All those interviews, he was always talking about the new music, see? Mm -hmm. And when he gets to the new music, he's talking fine, but he doesn't, it's like Dylan, don't look back. He doesn't care. He's always about it. moving forward, right? Plus, he's private. Mm -hmm. He doesn't like, that's why he was, when he made records, he would make a record and then disappear. He wasn't like Neil Young and Tom Petty and Bruce Springsteen who would invite you in the tour bus. You would get to know him. You have a persona. People, the listeners would identify with the image of the person. Mm -hmm. Paul was almost this unknown person who would just deliver this music every once in a while and then disappear. So I think that probably cost him commercially because you didn't identify with him in the same way you could identify with Petty's life or John Lennon's life and so forth. On the other hand, all that privacy... I think help protect the artistry because mm -hmm. I think you suffer a little bit as an artist. Did by, he, did he pick some of that up from his dad? Uh, no, I'm sorry. Yeah, his dad said, "Paul, the only thing is matters is the music. Mm -hmm. You've got to, you know, you and you, you've got to keep getting better. Mm -hmm. You, if you stand still, you're going to go backwards. Mm -hmm. So he was always, he always knew, keep away from the fame, keep keep private, and keep making music, never thinking you've mastered it. That was what his father did. Mm -hmm. Never think you've mastered it because that was his basically his career in music was uh, that sort of thing right his, his father yeah his well, father well not yeah. not really that's that's a romantic way of looking at it his father uh, was basically he he had a couple of glamour jobs he played in the, the orchestra at CBS he had a radio oh, Roseland Ballroom I think too he did the Roseland Ballroom yeah. but but all that's minor league stuff uh -huh. really he yeah. he mainly did bar mitzvahs he did mm -hmm. weddings he did things like that He's spending as much time lining up the jobs as actually do him. So he had not really much success. Mm -hmm. He was a very good player, but not much success. And Paul saw that too. The idea that even with, he kept working as hard as he could, even though he didn't have this huge success. So it was really what, uh, it was, but, 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 the, but the inspiration, it was, it was, uh, it was, uh, his mom gave him the confidence. She always said, you can do anything, Paul. I was going to ask about But his Bell. father yeah. was the one who said, you've got to never think you've mastered the music. And, and even the other night at the Hollywood Bowl, he's done the boy in the bubble 
for 20 years, yeah. okay? I, I go to the rehearsal. He's on stage. The, re- the sound checks are two hours. Yeah, like, some heard, artists yeah. don't even have a sound yeah. check, yeah. but he's there for two hours. At Reworking the, these songs. Well, the band calls it the matinee, okay? <laughs> and he's, re- he's, he's, he's I can, I've got a better way to do this part of Boy in the Bubble. After the, 20 uh, yeah. years, he's still doing that, you know? Yeah. 35, I'd be, I'd be, actually I'd, 30, 30 years. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'd be sitting in the dressing room watching television or something or, or reading or <laughs> yeah, having yeah. a glass of wine. Yeah, you could do this but in your sleep, but, Paul. But, but, you could do it in your sleep. But, but that's it, you know? I've, I've been in the studio with him where he'll say, he'll he'll give me a line, a line of a song, and I, here's five different ways I've done it, mm-hmm. you know? Which one sounds the best? I'll say, well, I can't tell the difference. They sound exactly the same to me. No, no, listen again. See, he's got this fine-tuning process in his brain where he can tell that. You know, that's one, one – but that's part of the, the quality control he's got. Paul McCartney, bless him, has put out a lot of weak albums, okay? And at one time I interviewed Paul, and I said, Paul, very grace, very gently, I said, why do you put so many albums out? Why don't you take the best of the songs and maybe put out half as many albums? Oh, no, 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 no. I never can judge my music. That's up to the public can do. I didn't think yesterday was any good. Look what happens and so forth. That's his approach, okay? I just put it out. The, yeah. Simon, no, no, no. I'm going to sit on that record for a year, two years, three years until it's. I know well, it's good. more like a master craftsman. Yeah, and one great story is he wins the Grammy for Graceland, okay? Yeah. Then he makes the Rhythm of the Saints, yeah. which is probably going to win another Grammy. And the record company says, Paul, we need the record right now if we're going to get it out in time to be eligible for the Grammy. He says, I'm not finished with it. I've got, I'm not finished with the sequencing of the songs. And he says, that's more important than the uh, Grammy, even though he wanted the Grammy so bad. That would have been his fourth, yes, unprecedented right. and, fourth. Nobody's and we're only fourth, talking right. about two weeks. Wow. Two weeks. Yeah. He could have sat down one yeah. night easily and said, okay, okay I'm, here's I'm, the sequence. But, but he doesn't right. do that. He doesn't let go until it's absolutely perfect in his wow. mind. And he would have probably, he'd be the first person ever to win four Grammy Album yeah. of the Year yeah. awards. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so let's get him out of Queens uh, for his first taste of fame. <laughs> uh, but before we do, we have to introduce. Uh, uh, another character here uh, from The Life. And like it or not, forever entwined in Simon history is Art Garfunkel. Um, I, I didn't know that they were a thing in 1957 known as Tom and Jerry. It's so early in the history of rock and roll. It was there at almost the beginning. It's crazy. You know, granted, a one-trick pony with uh, Hey Schoolgirl. Um, uh, that's obviously heavy, heavily influenced by the Everly Brothers. Um, so why did they not why were they unable to successfully follow up with that? Well, the funny thing is, I mean, what I, what I love is is twists of fate. Mm. The Gar, Garfunkel, I mean, Simon's born in Newark, New Jersey, right? He, his family, when he's two years old, moves to Kew Gardens Hills, New York. Right. Two blocks from a family named Garfunkel. Uh, it's I, a crazy. I, I, well, it's like Lennon and McCartney. You know, they were less than <laughs> yeah, a mile yeah, apart yeah. from that each amazing? other. Isn't I, I, I always yeah. wonder, why, how is it that, you know, let's, for a moment, Lennon and McCartney, probably the greatest songwriting geniuses of the 20th century that will be remembered 500 years from now. How is it that two geniuses <laughs> are a mile apart? Anyway, we could go yeah, on yeah, forever. Yeah, that. Yeah. But same thing with Simon and Garfunkel. Okay, right. and the thing, think of this. Elvis Presley... Sam Phillips wants to open a recording studio called Sun Records yeah. and blend country and blues. Right, okay? right. Meet into rock and roll. He opens the studio six blocks from where a kid named Elvis Presley lives. Yeah, I mean yeah. That, those fates. I, I mean those are just amazing. Yeah. But uh, but uh, anyway, so 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 how how they weren't able to follow up? Oh, hey, okay. Girl. So they make Tom and Jerry, which is a 
Everly Brothers kind of song. Yeah, he gets yeah. to number 49 or 50 in the country, mainly because of some payola back east he gets uh-huh, on the radio. Uh-huh. And the recording, and again, Paul is the songwriter, remember? And so he brings some more records, more songs to the owner of Big Records, which is a little tiny label named Big. Uh, and he says, here's some more songs for Artie and I to do. Plus, he, here's some, I guess somehow, he says, well, I don't think this is so much a Simon and Garfunkel or a Tom and Jerry song. It sounds more like Elvis here. In fact, why don't you do this as a solo artist, Paul? Okay, okay. He's excited about being in the music business. He's still going to do more Tom and Jerry records, but they don't tell Garfunkel. Mm-hmm. And Garfunkel feels betrayed. Oh, he yeah. feels like he's he's forgotten about me. He's abandoning me. In fact, this is the, probably the most fascinating... Wow, something that's happened several times uh, yeah, well, in the decades. Well, see, it never, they never healed that no. resentment that... that uh, Art had and the fear mm-hmm. that he was going to be dumped again. And here's the most single and amazing thing, and I think I came across in the whole year, time of researching the book. I found an unpublished interview his Paul's mom did Bell. back mm-hmm. in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And back in that time of Tom and Jerry, they were 16, 17 years old. Right. Art's father, seeing what's going on, that Paul writes the songs, tries to get Paul's father to sign a contract saying Paul, for the rest of his life, will only sing and record with Art Garfunkel. Isn't that, I mean, how can you do that at 16 years old? And Paul's father says, no, I'm not going to sign that. He might want to do something different someday. Thankfully. But but isn't that one of the great things? And it's been hidden for all these years in that unpublished interview she did. That's crazy. So Tom and Jerry split up. Um, For five years, they don't talk to each other. Yeah, Paul Paul continues to to pursue music while Garfunkel goes to Columbia to study architecture. Paul does get a degree, an English degree from Queens College. Um, but more importantly, he does uh, many different jobs in the New York recording biz. Um, would it be fair to say that at that point, Paul leapfrogs uh, Garfunkel musically by gaining the proverbial 10,000 hours? No, no, because if you know, he, he spent five years uh, write, trying to write songs, all copied off the radio, just like Hey School Girl was. Yeah, hey School Girl yeah. is not a good song. He's copying what's on the radio. There's no imagination in any of those songs. He's recording demos for other artists. Uh, and in fact, he was doing things so terrible as one of the songs he recorded, there was a hit in the 50s called I Want to Be the Lipstick on Your Collar. Yeah, Con- okay. Connie Francis. Uh, yeah. So, oh, yeah, the, yeah. so the song Paul records, I want to be the lipstick on your lips. Now, is there anything cornier than that? <laughs> no. But the, he spent five years doing that stuff. Right. And I and, and Simon fans for years have been trying to find all of those great demos and those great recordings and stuff. And I've, I've, you know, I've got a three-disc set of maybe 50 of them, and there's not one minute... In any that you of go, that. there's genius. Yeah, there's. You wouldn't think genius. You wouldn't think that guy's even worth listening to. It was just unbelievably. But but he was learning how to work in a recording studio. That was the one benefit of all that right, stuff. Right. But still, he was going nowhere. He's not progressing at all. No, as not a as a songwriter. No, I just don't understand just, it. He doesn't understand it. But he was, and, and finally, he gets discouraged. You know, he's saying, you know, I'm not going anywhere. This stuff isn't any good. Elvis was in the army. Chuck Berry was in jail. But it was Bobby V, Bobby Vinton. They were making records. I don't yeah. know if I want to be part of this pop music anymore. Yeah. And he says he sees folk music 
and Joan Baez and yeah. Bob Dylan. Right. Oh my yeah. God, he hears Bob Down Dylan. Down in Greenwich. Because right. he first started listening to Joan Baez, but he didn't like all those folk songs. I'm going down to the river and stab my baby. <laughs> all those English songs. But he heard Bob Dylan. Now, Bob Dylan's talking about his life. That's what I want to do in my music. I want to, I want to have something really unique and, de- and deep down. And that was the turning point. Right. So uh, we have to talk about the breakthrough hit, Sound of Silence. Um, but it's actually, it's the second version that takes off when all seems lost. Um, I think it's uh, with. I think it's fair to say without Uber producer Tom Wilson, Simon and Garfunkel might have remained in obscurity. Well, the thing, if I could inject something though, because the essential thing to know is he's trying to be by, like Bob Dylan, but he's not Bob Dylan. He's writing corny songs still. He's still writing corny folk songs. Uh-huh. But John F. Kennedy. But died. even even Bob Dylan saw him live once down at Gertie's, right? Uh, at Gertie's uh, 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 in in Greenwich. What Did about it? Bob Dylan saw him once play? Oh. Yeah, that, that was Folk City later. Yeah. Oh, but, Folk City. But, but, okay. but, but he, uh, he, he can't, he's not doing anything. He, 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 I, how come I can't do something better, more original, something on my own? And John F. Kennedy dies. He sits in his room uh, for November two 22nd, days. Huh? November 22nd, 1963. Yeah, that, that, so he sits in his room for two days crying, moping, despondent. He finally gets up, goes into the family bathroom. It's dark in there. He always goes in there to try to write songs. He turns the water on to hear the tile echo like a recording studio. He sits there for days trying to come up with something that's interesting. And he finally says, hello, darkness. The darkness is the room. The darkness is the world. The darkness is his feeling. So that was, it took that pain of the Kennedy assassination to enable him to dig down deep and write a great song. And once he wrote a great song, he never stopped. He, he, he kept, he, he plied all the stuff his father told him, you keep getting better, you keep getting better, you don't look at the trends and so forth, you keep going forward. Right, right. So from there, they all of a sudden hit it big. I know now. Oh, you he, asked about Tom Wilson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, that's right. They made the first record. And the funny thing is, is what's important is Paul goes, he goes to England while Art's going to Columbia and he writes, starts writing. He's a solo solo artist playing in these little clubs and he yeah. writes uh, Homeward Bound. He writes I'm a Rock. He mm-hmm. writes th- those songs over there. Yeah. He comes back. Uh, he goes to Columbia Records to Tom Wilson and says, I'd like to try to get a recording contract here. And Tom Wilson says, well, I'm sorry, Paul, but we've already got Bob Dylan. We don't need another songwriter. We don't need another solo songwriter. And he says, wait, I have a friend who we've sung together. What if I go get him and bring him in? Because he was looking for a group, see? So he goes and gets Garfunkel. That's how they reunited. Uh-huh. So he never went to Columbia Records to be Simon and Garfunkel. It was to be Paul Simon. Right. So he brings Garfunkel in and he plays The Sound of Silence. With and, that harmony magic. Oh, oh are you yeah. kidding? And so yes, yes, we'll sign you immediately. <laughs> but the record was a flop. The album was a yeah, flop. Yeah. So less than he a goes thousand, back to England. 11 to 1,000 copies. He yeah. goes back to England yeah. and keeps working on, you know, for... And while he's there, while he's gone, someone gives Tom Wilson the idea to redo Sound of Silence because the Mr. Tambourine Man was just a hit. Let me do it in that style, Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. 12-string guitar. So he redoes it without Simon and Garfunkel even knowing about it. Mm -hmm. They put it out. It starts going up the chart. Paul gets a phone call, come home, you're a star. (laughs) (laughs) That's crazy. And then 
now we have uh, Simon and Garfunkel. So yeah. uh, throughout the 60s, the, the duo uh, achieves tremendous fame and, uh, you know, cultural significance, certainly with the Graduate uh, soundtrack. And then uh, Bridge Over Troubled Water, an even bigger hit. Uh, but then at their height, they break up. Uh, this this kind of ends the first par- part of uh, Paul Simon's career. So what what would you say about uh, the, the takeaway of the original Simon and Garfunkel? Well, you know, there were a lot of good times they had. Now, people, we all talk now about how far apart they are, but they were great. They had fun on the road. They were they they'd make jokes. They had the same sense of humor. There were some great times, but there were also undercurrents going all the way back to Hey School Girl. Mm-hmm. Remember, Art's always thinking he's only a step away from Simon could decide to leave again. And so the question is, why did Simon decide to leave again? There have been all kinds of stories told over the years, ego conflicts, uh, jealousy. Art goes off to make a movie. Paul's sitting in New York waiting for him to come back for six oh, that's months. Catch he's frustrated. Mm-hmm. But I'm my thesis in the book, Christian, is all that stuff collectively wasn't the reason he left. The reason Paul left was going back to his father, being better at what you're doing. He thought he had taken Simon to Garfunkel as far as, as, far as they could go. He didn't want to sit around and go downhill. So he walks away from all that security, you know, commercial success and stuff. And in after t- Paul, the, Clive Davis, the head of Columbia, said, it's the biggest mistake you're ever going to make walking away from Garfunkel. He says, okay, it's the only way the music can survive. Mm-hmm. And look at what he did. Oh, yeah. you know, he yeah. said, someday yeah. I hope people will look back at my music and say, oh, Simon de Garfunkel was the early part. But you've done, look at what you've done since. And, and in the book, I think if you take his songwriting, he wrote, let's say, five great songs during the Simon and Garfunkel days. Yeah, he's written fifty since then. I mean, look at look at that proportion. Yeah, yeah. and there, there are three very distinct periods of Paul's Simon. Maybe maybe four uh, yeah. after Graceland, but you know, Simon and Garfunkel, the seventies, and then uh, and then obviously uh, in the mid eighties with Graceland. But yeah. but let's talk about the the the, the mid seventies here. So you know. Paul's now has the freedom to explore musically, and in 1972, his first solo record, uh, he does. And two songs really stand out for me there, and that's Mother and Child Reunion and Me and Julio Down by the Schoolyard. It's kind of like the beginning of Paul Simon being the father, godfather of world music, would you yeah, say, at yeah. least to American ears. Yeah, I don't think he gets much credit for that, but but look, it's it's uh, those two songs are so unique. You know, still, if you, after all these years, they're still, uh, Me and Julio stands out as just totally an island apart from everything else in pop music. And I thought that was a tremendous step when he did that record. But but it was the next album, the next album where he, he emerges as just the classic songwriter, American Tune, yeah. and Something So Right. Mm-hmm. Now, if you listen to American Tune today, and imagine a 24-year-old writing that song about the country's problems, it would be, I mean, he would be considered the new... Dylan, the new Paul Simon, the new everything else, yeah. and writing that song fifty years ago and have it last that long. I mean, that, that's when I think that's that was the moment mm-hmm. that it was clear that Paul Simon was going to be here for the long run. You know that he was able to get that level on his own when he wasn't. The first Simon album sells a million copies. The record industry, uh, Bridge Over Trouble Water, had sold six or seven. The record industry said, oh, it's over. He's going downhill. Right, you know, right. He's not selling as much. Yeah. But he bounced back with that next album. And he didn't sell that much more, but the music was so great. Kodachrome was on that. Oh, but, yeah. But yeah. American Tune and yeah. Something So Right, I think yeah. it was just, Cole Porter could have not have written a better song than Something So Right. And I don't know who could have written a better song than American, American Tune. American Tune, yeah. 
Yeah, that's pretty. That's pretty amazing uh, material. So, all right, let, let me switch to the personal for for a moment. Uh, in the book, you spend some time examining Paul Simon's closest relationships. We talked a little bit about uh, Art Garfunkel, but you know, three in particular, and they all fail in one respect. And uh, you know, the the two marriages, uh, one with Peggy Harper and Carrie Fisher. So, why do you think? Well, first, the fact is, is that even though he has this tumultuous life. The muse never seems to leave him. Um, it's it's almost like the uh, the grist that's needed to to make great art. Well, I think I think you find with Dylan, um, Neil Young, John Lennon at early days, artistry is difficult, and it, you have to almost be obsessive. You have to, that has to be above everything else, which means your relationships are going to suffer, your friendships are going to suffer. Everything in your life is secondary to that music. Mm-hmm. And that's what Paul spent that whole 70s. He was unhappy. Uh, he says, you know, why am I unhappy? I, I, uh, I, I, I have all this success, all this, and I love writing songs. And he said, maybe I should get married. That's, <laughs> my parents were very happy. Maybe I'll get married. That'll make me happy. So he marries Peggy Harper. Right. And he didn't give her, give her a chance. He was still always in the studio. It didn't work out. He did, He wasn't happy. He was lonelier than ever, you mm-hmm. know? And then he meets Carrie Fisher. Well, she's in show business. Maybe that'll work out better. But he's still obsessed with that music. So that never had a chance. And uh, it wasn't until he meets Edie Brickell much later. In the later that, 80s, that, yeah. That he's, now he's ready 90s, to so. open up and have more balance in his mm-hmm. life. He, he's able to give the relationship a chance, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, the first two relationships, I, I talked to Peggy and I talked to... Uh, Carrie and they were just great people, you know. They're so much fun, but it just could he couldn't fit him into the, his life. There wasn't room for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and Carrie especially was so different. She loved publicity. He hated. He wanted privacy. She wanted the West Coast. He wanted the East Coast. Uh, she wanted to go out all the time. He wanted to stay and write in his music, you know. Yeah. Uh, and her addiction problems. So all those things hurt that relationship. Uh, and he didn't think he was ever going to find. And he meets uh, uh, Edie Brickell on the Saturday Night Live show. All right, I, I have. To, since you brought it up, talk a little bit about Saturday Night Live because, you know, in the mid seventies, all of a sudden, Paul Simon is hilarious. I mean, I think he's the host of the second Saturday Night Live, uh, and then uh, uh, one instance is obviously, famously, he comes out in a turkey suit to sing uh, uh, the Sound of Silence, or is it Bridge Over Trouble? One, yeah, one, one of the two. Yeah. But but it, that's it's it's crazy. But then all of a sudden, you see. Oh my God, this guy's hilarious, you know. And I know one of his best friends is Lorne Michaels, yeah. so that's you it, know. It, it wasn't unintentional that he comes out in a turkey suit and he plays basketball with a six foot eleven, oh, that's right. 11 that's guy. Right. Right. Uh, he hated the fact that people thought he didn't have humor. So <laughs> Lorne Michaels is best. He becomes his best friend. They because part because of the humor and mm-hmm. stuff. And he says, "Come on the show." And Paul loves the idea of going on and having the fun. But even that, I don't think really. Many people think, well, he's doing that, but he's still this serious guy from – he's sad, serious guy from Simon and Garfunkel because his face, when you when he, see him away from the stage, it's kind of dour. It doesn't look like he's happy and stuff, you know? It, but, and he tends to be reserved and shy. He's not really outgoing. Uh, 
so I think that image continues to haunt him despite the Saturday Night Live stuff. Although if you were perceptive enough, you would have seen this guy's got a, especially because he oh came up with the ideas for those yeah, things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was in there in the writer's uh, yeah, yeah. He room brings up the writing idea. with Belushi and <laughs> yeah. uh, Aykroyd and uh, I'm Chevy thinking, Chase and all that. Yeah, I'm thinking when I see him in the turkey, how did anyone talk him into doing that? <laughs> oh, no, yeah. no. He, it was him who said, yeah. oh, I'll do it. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. great. That's just crazy. All right. So in the mid-'80s, uh, Paul Simon reinvents himself once again, um, this time radically. Uh, of course, I'm pointing to his, you know, unqualified masterpiece, Graceland. It's mostly South African world music, uh, but on a massive pop scale. So Graceland opened so many ears in America to this other music, um, but it wasn't without controversy. Uh, the African National Congress and even little Stephen uh, really hit him hard for not uh, following the cultural exchange ban um, implemented by the UN. So my first question on this is what was your reflection at the time uh, that Graceland came out? Oh, I, I I just loved the record, mm-hmm. you know, I, and I didn't get caught up so much in the controversy about it. Mm-hmm. I didn't think, I kind of agreed with him that going to South Africa and recording with South African musicians, paying them triple, double scale is not the same as going to Sun City and getting a million dollars to play. Uh, and, right, right. And, so, right. and I talked to little Stephen, who I've known for years, I, I yeah. respect him so much, Uh and I read the things that I read about the controversy, but it really was more of a controversy in England in you know, Billy Bragg and, and, and Paul Weller. Those artists were really, really critical of him. And uh, so I read it, but I, I never I, I never adopted rightly or wrongly the idea that that was more important than the music. The music mm-hmm. itself was so great. I thought taking South African music, and uh, it superimposing the American pop music tradition on top of it, you know? And I think, Amazing. here's my prediction, we'll see 50 years from now. I think that album, more than any album Bob Dylan made, will be remembered as, as the masterpiece. Because, more than Blonde on Blonde and Blood on the Tracks? Yes, yes, because the world's going to get smaller and countries are going to be borrowing from each other musically, and uh, that's yeah, going to be the yeah. framework, you know? That so I think that album. I'm not saying it's a better album. No, no. But, but I think that'll be more the, influential. Right. That could open the door for mu- musicians around the world of how you can be daring and do mm-hmm. that. Because you got to remember, one of the funny things is Christian, when he does that, he's at the bottom is his career. Uh, one trick pony. Yeah, one trick pony movie. Failure. Big failure. Yeah. He was embarrassed. It was yeah. a terribly ego thing on his yeah. own part. He thought mm-hmm. he could. I, I won the Grammy for Still Crazy. I can do anything. Well, he can't. He couldn't write and star in a movie. Mm-hmm. Then Hearts and Bones, the next album, is a big commercial failure, okay? Then Carrie Fisher divorces him. So his career and his personal life have all collapsed. Plus, he picks up a copy of Billboard magazine. And the issue says, we're looking for new voices in pop music. And one DJ says in particular, a radio programmer, we're not going to play people like Paul Simon anymore. So he's saying... <laughs> well, wait a minute. You know, well, that's me. <laughs> that's right. And so what do I do now? And for weeks, he was depressed. He sat around. He would listen to tapes kind of in vague vague background, but he heard this tape of South African music and he kept going back to it, back to it. It took him days before he realized he was going back to it. And, wow, that sounds exciting. And But that wasn't a career strategy mm-hmm. because it was the worst thing you could do. American pop fans do not buy 
foreign sounds. Think of how few no. records yeah. in the last the, 50 yeah, years. Yeah. Now, they do in England, mm-hmm. they do in Japan, mm-hmm. they do in France. They're open to world music. Uh, but in America, insular, so, so the fact that he goes there, you can imagine Warner Brothers, oh my God, mm-hmm. what's he doing? Mm-hmm. Going to South Africa? He's making a record like that? <laughs> he comes back, he makes this record. It takes months and months to, to edit those tracks from South Africa. Turn him to in, turn him into the songs. songs. Yeah, yeah. And so then he brings it to Warner Brothers. And that was Roy Halley that he worked with. Roy Halley, on, on, great producer, that, great producer. Yeah, yeah. And so he, in fact, he was so important that engineer to Simon and Garfunkel, it was, it was called, in the industry, it was called Simon Garfunkel and Halley. <laughs> but he brings the music in to play to the sales staff at Warner Brothers. And Roy Halley tells me the story. They were sitting around, they wanted a new Madonna record, they wanted a new Prince record. What in the hell is this stuff he's playing? And everyone was rubbing their, you know, rolling their eyes. And at the end of the meeting, Lenny Warnerker, the head of the label, says, oh, Warner, yeah. that's a great record. Everybody in the room says, yes! Oh, the boss thinks <laughs> they it's start great. Call, they it's start great. Call, that's, what, and that's what people do. They're following, you yeah. know, and, and thank yeah. God for Lenny because he, but look what-, what That's was, an old record, man. And look there, what was the yeah. first single they picked because they wanted to keep away from the world music aspect. Oh, they did. Uh, uh, you, you can call you can me call out, me out yeah, which is yeah. not does not sound yeah, South yeah, African. Yeah. But not that, to mention a video to go along with it, which yeah, became well, that a was, staple Well, see, the record MTV. comes out. It was not a success. And then they make the video. Mm-hmm. The video goes on MTV. Then people say, well, that's great. I want to get that album. And it was the video that made the album go from like 195 to 11 to 2 to 1, you know, in a period or whatever it was in three or four weeks. But before that, they all thought they had another failure. Oh, that's amazing. That's amazing. So, you know, you brought up uh, uh, the One Trick Pony, a couple of the, of the failures. And um, I, I don't mean to, this to be, you know, negative uh, because through failure comes understanding. But I, I, I got to ask, you know, when, you know, he tries these new territories like film or, or Broadway with the Cape Man, um, why, I, I'm not I'm sure why he doesn't apply the same lessons from earlier in his career where he says, oh, I need to go and hone these skills to then control the situation after the fact. Well, look, he, he's, he's had all this success. And in the studio with Simon and Garfunkel and Simon, he was spending all his time protecting his music against outside influences, mm-hmm. things that would alter his vision. When he goes to Hollywood, he's, he wants to protect his vision again. He wants to keep out the directors and all these people who might change the vision. Now, that's a mistake he made. But in his own mind, I, I don't want a, a big-name producer coming in here and changing this movie from what I want. Okay. Mm-hmm. Afterwards, he, no, it was a, he was egotistical. He was overconfident. He made a terrible mistake in not getting a writer, not getting a director. And he admits all that. Okay. But, he, but he does it again okay. Broadway. Okay. <laughs> Exactly, but that's something. It's an ingrained yeah. thing to protect uh, your protect your artistry. Mm-hmm. Now, this, the, the the difference in Broadway is the music itself yeah. was brilliant. Yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. it was the play the that was yeah. bad because mm-hmm. again, he didn't hire a big name director. Mm-hmm. He co-wrote it with Derek Walcott, a producer who, I mean, a Nobel Prize winning poet, which is not a playwright. Yeah. Uh, that was a mistake, and at the end, he admits again, "I made the mistake again. I should have got a director." So, so that it's ingrained so much to protect himself. It's just a human flaw. Uh-huh. It's a it's a serious flaw that he has that he couldn't trust 
a director to come in, you know, and I think if he made another Broadway musical now, he's thinking, maybe I should write another musical now. Maybe so, but you better hire a director and a writer and so forth. Well, um, after seeing the show Wednesday night, I've, I've got an idea, and he should follow what Bruce Springsteen is doing on Broadway. Yeah, that's interesting. An intimate sort of thing. I, one of my favorite pieces of uh, the night was when he grabbed the uh, string uh, oh, quartet. Oh, beautiful? Lips, and yeah. it's just him directing. That was absolutely amazing. Yeah, I mean, beautiful. I had tears. It was Wow, it was, that's great. Somebody amazing. else told me the same thing. They had yeah. tears in that part, but yeah. uh, it was gorgeous, you know, and I love the song. And he's working on an album now that will come out in the fall, I think. Mm-hmm. Which is where he takes ten of his favorite songs that were never hits, right? And I've heard redo- this. Mm-hmm. Redoes them, mm-hmm. and, and the, it's the, now that's sort of looking back a little bit. Well, uh, the idea is here's the idea: a lot of you know, Paul Simon. Most most people have hits. The great artists have hits that go into the cultural consciousness. I'm not sure there's any song, right. any great songs that are more in the cultural consciousness from any writer than Simon. Okay, the Beatles, Maybe yes, but, the, but, yeah, but I want to hold your hand. Those aren't great songs. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you could talk about Hey Jude, yeah. uh, Eleanor Rigby. Those are great songs. Uh, Imagine. But so, but Simon's got 30 of those, okay? I mean, if you go me yeah. and Julio, you go, yeah. if, yeah. if you took just the so- songs he yeah. wrote in the I had twenty. I had 28 in my Spotify list of like, you know, top, okay. top yeah, so, 10 but they're, and but, but all they're, culturally but, relevant. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so he says, you know, there were some other songs. I would love to get a couple more songs in that list. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to take the songs I've already done. <laughs> Very competitive. And I'm going to take some other songs again, I've already right? done because I think they deserve to be there. I think right. I think Darling Lorraine is as good as, you know, blah, 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 whatever song, Obvious Child. And uh, so he's trying to redo them in a, in a different way. Uh, and that's his goal. That's, is to, that'll is to be get very a couple interesting more. to listen and, to. And one of my favorite things in the book is how he t- t- talks about his songwriting process. Mm-hmm. The idea that if our, you and I were sitting down to write a song, I would think the first thing we need to do is think of a theme. What are we going to write about? Right. Okay. He doesn't do that. He sits down and starts playing music. He starts playing guitar or piano until something he plays mm-hmm is evocative to him. See, that's why he's always searching for new sounds, Latin music, Mm -hmm. South African music, uh, Eastern African music, electronic music, because he's always trying to find a sound that will evoke something. He doesn't want to go back and do folk songs. He doesn't want to go back. He wants to keep moving. And once he finds something evocative, whether it was Sound of Silence or Graceland, he'll say, well, what is that making me feel? How can I put into words what that what music the, what is the saying? Says. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so and he goes line by line. He doesn't come up with an idea of what the song's about. He'll go one line and look at it and say, well, what does that make me think? And in that process, he'll discover the theme. And that's what's amazing. That's the way Fellini made films. Mm-hmm. Fellini used to say, you can never make a great film by taking a book and adapting it because you're limited by the imagination of the book writer. Right. But when you're tr- when you're just letting your self consciousness discover the theme, he said there were certain lines he would come up with, like in Graceland, uh, losing love is like a window to your heart. You, everybody can see how it, you're blown apart. Mm-hmm. He said when he came up with that line, he sat down in the bed. It took the breath out of him because it was so personal. Yeah. So personal, yeah. you know. So that's what you, the, the kind of unique thing about the songwriting that he does. That I think if a person reads a songwriter reads the book, that's an interesting. thing. I don't know if many people can can write that way. I would think again. You and I would sit down and let's write it. We had a a bad day yesterday. Let's talk about our troubles. <laughs> you know. Then we try to figure out some way to say that. And make it rhyme, right. Uh, So near the end of the book, to follow with this this line of thinking here, is Simon is uh, publicly announcing now his possible retirement from 
touring, but we'll take that with a grain of salt. Well, uh, as I, we I, all I don't think learned. he's the Eagles. Yeah. I don't think he's Cher. You know, <laughs> I think he's going to. You got to see, see what he's not retiring. Yeah, yeah. He's stopping. Just There's touring, no more big tours. tours. Yeah. He'll do an occasional yeah. live yeah. show that's a benefit. Yeah, yeah. but yeah. he's not going to tour anymore. Or maybe that Broadway idea I have. Uh, so. that, yeah, that, no, that's right. <laughs> that's right. That's not a tour. That I mean, he might he might perform again somehow, but it won't be a traditional tour. It'll be usually me for for a benefit. He might write a, a musical. He might write a new song. He might make another album. He's not retiring. He's just touring is gone. Mm-hmm. So his friend Chuck Close uh, is rather aghast at this uh, and uh, tries to dissuade him. Um, he then says, and I, and I quote uh, from your book, uh, talent is a dime a dozen, but some of the most talented people never accomplish anything. Sometimes the person with far less ta- talent outperforms the talented person because he's hungrier. He wants more. Doesn't that say a lot about the character of Paul Simon? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think he's he's got a the, the, the fallacy with that is because I would repeat that line Chuck said, and I would I believe it. But the fallacy you got to remember if you're a songwriter wanting to be Paul Simon, he had a lot of great talent to begin with. You know, you're not coming not you're not like coming with no talent and say I'm going to work hard and become a great songwriter. Okay. But as we discussed earlier, that you know pre Tom and Jerry, uh, pre pre Simon and Garfunkel, post Tom and Jerry period, there's all these songs and. <laughs> They're all horrible, and they never get better. So, okay, but I mean, wouldn't it? Wouldn't okay, the, let's the, say you, the, the let's, talented let's, person. Let's say you and I again. We want yeah, to write songs. Right. We go through five years of writing terrible songs. Then we say, you know, Christian, I, let's get better. <laughs> okay, we, we sit down. We get we go in the bathroom. Yeah, we turn yeah. off the lights. John F. Kennedy water, or whoever we turn dies. the water on. <laughs> something bad happens in the news. But what if it doesn't come? That song. What if we have yeah. nothing inside to yeah. say? Yeah. That's what's the mystery. See? Oh, That's I what think the everybody has. No, no say. way, no, no way, no way. <laughs> I tell you, there's one in a million that can be a Paul Simon or Bob Dylan. Well. And so, I mean, that's if obvious. That's, if that's because there's nothing. There's not. There's not that artistic edge, and there's nothing they have that deep to say. You've mm-hmm. got to have those two things mm-hmm. hand in hand. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise, why wouldn't they be? Why wouldn't the charts be full of people? Who can you name today? Mm-hmm. Jason Isbell's a great writer today. There's oh, very yeah. few people. Uh, Father John Misty's a good yeah, but, yeah, but yeah. songwriting is gone. It's all spectacle and it's all, it's, you know. Uh, well, maybe we're just in a moment and well, maybe, maybe so. Will come but look back, at how unique rock and roll was. It was. 50 years. Well, look at swing. Yeah. So look at no. swing. Was anything bigger than swing? Three years. No, yeah. Three yeah. years. 50 okay. plus years. And you yeah. think about this also. If. Bob Dylan hadn't come along. What were, where would rock and roll have gone? Because there was not a oh, lot. Oh, it was uh, it was all uh, you know with teeny bopper. It was and, fun. Uh, it was rebellion. Uh, yeah. it, it had it had it girls had a, and it cars. Had a great and, challenge. Yeah. Elvis yeah. Presley and Chuck Berry had this great challenge, and but but few people could live up to that. And mm-hmm. then Dylan comes along, and 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 I would have been. I, see, I grew up right in the fifties, and I would have been tired of it by the time I was in college. When the Beatles first come along, I say, well, that's kind of cute, but all they're doing is what Charles Carl Perkins did. Yeah, I didn't see anything Barry, great yeah, in that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But Dylan, Dylan puts art, imagination, and thought into that energy. Yeah. And then the Beatles see that, and Simon go, sees that, that. And, yeah. and Bruce yeah. Springsteen sees that, and Bono sees yeah. that, and Tom Petty sees that. So it was that thought that was that was put on. Uh, and and so, and after a while, maybe that's, what more can you say with rock and roll? How many, just as Paul Simon ran out of 
chords after Bridge Over Water. Maybe rock and roll has run out of those things. Maybe you've yeah. got to find a new form. Yeah. Maybe electronic yeah. dance music. But the well, thing we is- we say it's a you know this came about because of a of a combination of of the music. Uh, technology and the culture all coming together. You know, I mean, the American uh, century really is about the latter half of the yeah, 20th yeah. century. And, and, Rock and, and roll is an American I, art form, and the technology arrives to mass produce it and, uh, you know, put it in everybody's uh, homes. But I can't underline any more the fact if you and I try to sit down and, and write The Sound of Silence, <laughs> it ain't going to happen. And a million other people, and 10 million other people, it's not going to happen. It's right, got, it's, right. You've got to have that unique yeah. talent. But yeah. the thing is, you've got to find it. Yourself yeah. and a lot of songwriters never go that deep to find it. They might have it there, but they don't. They they settle for things. Once it's a success, well, that's as I just I'll, I'll try to keep working with the same framework. Uh, like Bruce Springsteen, that's what he, one of the great things Bruce said one time. Every as a songwriter, every time you've got to take another layer of skin off to get deeper inside. You know, and a lot of people, I've had artists talk to me. I don't want to get that deeper inside. It's hard. It's I. I just want to make songs, you know, lighter songs and have hit records. It's really unique that I've seen somebody get as deep as John Lennon, mm-hmm. Bob Dylan, Paul Simon, Bruce Springsteen. I think Bono comes close to that sometimes. But it's very, you know, and there are other artists, Stevie Wonder. But mm-hmm. but that's very hard to get to that level of 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 of. And and then when you dig down there, some people just don't have it. You know? Right. Right. All right. So after researching and writing the book, if the Nobel Prize Committee was to award a second songwriter uh, <laughs> the award for literature, uh, do you think Paul Simon should be a candidate? Yeah, well, of course, a candidate. Yeah, I think uh, I think the body of work is just unique. OK, I think there are other great not Randy Newman, Joni Mitchell, Springsteen. And Springsteen might be a candidate for it, uh, but I think that body of work, I don't think anybody can match that. Going from Sound of Silence to Questions for the Angels, Questions for the Angels is just a fantastic mm-hmm. song, though. It's mm-hmm. about it's about the culture and environmental issues, and it's like him being a, a parent and a citizen. It's how he feels at this age in his life, and it's got this one verse in it is as good as anything he's ever written or as good a thing as I've heard in years. If everybody in the world died and all the buildings collapsed— yeah. Would a zebra on the plains of Africa shed, shed a, a single zebra right. tear? Oh, I mean, that's, <laughs> no, but you're trying to say something about the yeah. world and the planet and interdependence. Mm. How can you say something as gentle as that? You're not protesting. No. Oh, you're we not should, hammering over the yeah, head. That's right. it. You know, it's saying a sweet, warm thing. And all uh, that's always, if you look through Paul's music, Bridge Over to Water, Mrs. Robinson, Graceland, the best song, still crazy after all these years, there's that empathy you know there's that caring about people and i think that's what brings people to simon's music that's the but it's not as it's not as dramatic mm-hmm. as dylan and springsteen yeah, yeah. so people don't feel it as much it's just it's music that you one person said simon is everyone's second best favorite songwriter you know because they think more <laughs> right, of right. the other people because yeah. they know their life story you mm-hmm. know they know what they're like and they can identify with it and stuff paul just says here's my music they don't he doesn't share the life story that's what i hope i got to a little bit in the book i think you did so last question so it's looking like you've got a collection going here so who's life next? Yeah, <laughs> that's the one question I haven't been able to deal with. You know, I've got my original list of seven, uh, but it's very hard. You've got to find somebody that you want to spend two or three years yeah. writing about. Mm-hmm. That's very hard because you've got to be interested in it. You yeah. don't want to be bored wandering no. around. It's 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 like a, you know having a, a second marriage for a while. Well, yeah. it, no, it really is because it's it's uh, uh, a publisher asked me offered me a fortune 
to write a biography of Prince, okay? And I like Prince, but I don't know people around Prince. You'd have to be knocking at his door, you know, trying to get people to talk to you. And I don't know if I want to spend two or three years struggling like that to do it. Um, a good candidate, but maybe you do, too but soon. I don't. He wouldn't yeah. be in my top uh, list, though. Uh-huh. But uh, Stevie Wonder, is, I think, is tremendous. Oh, yeah. But he goes in his own time so much. When I did interviews back in the, in the day, he'd always be three hours late, <laughs> and then he talks in a kind of a spiritual, yeah. vague way that makes you, if you ask him, and I love Steve Winter, you ask him what day it is, it'll take him an hour and a half to tell you that it's Friday, you know? So that's probably impo- impossible. I think that'll be a great book someday, though, for somebody to actually tackle that project. So I'm working on some, two or three other four things. Not very many, you'd be surprised, because I don't think many people measure up to that, you know, oh. and you can get through to them to make an intelligent book. So I'll tell you as soon as I know. <laughs> I we can't know wait to hear. Yeah. Robert Hilburn, it's been fantastic yeah, having great. you with us here at Deeper Digs in Rock. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Christian, thank you very, very much. got diamonds on the soles of her shoes Well, that's one way to lose these walking blues Diamonds on the soles of her shoes She's physically forgotten But then she slipped into my pocket with my car keys She said you've taken me for granted Because I've cleaned you Wearing these diamonds All right, let's hear it for Robert Hilburn. Wow, great discussion. Please, uh, tell us what you think. I want to say this. Here at the RNRA, this was a dream interview for us, truly. So, as I said up top, we were thrilled. As music fans growing up in L.A., we knew Hilburn. You might love him, you might hate him, but you sure as hell read him. And we cannot wait to sit down with him again in the future. Okay, before we leave, a few notes on our subject today, the great Paul Simon. Uh, While I was doing the research, I counted them up. According to Billboard.com, between his solo work and Simon and Garfunkel, Paul Simon wrote 28 top 40 hit songs. 14 are in the top 10, and four come in at number one. An incredible feat in the rock and roll pantheon. This is Lennon and McCartney territory. And remember, they were a team. Paul Simon was just one guy. Add to this the global impact of Graceland, uh, both at its release and that the impact is still being felt 30 years on. Hilburn is right in saying this piece of work will still be relevant long into the future. I think we can bank on it. We wish Paul well on the rest of his last tour. We just hope he takes us up on our suggestion and goes back to Broadway for a long-term residency gig right there in his beloved hometown. Come on, he's not really going to stop playing. But we get why being on the road is weary, even if the accommodations are far superior than a greyhound from Pittsburgh. I'm Christian Swain, and this has been Deeper Digs in Rock, a production of Rock and Roll Archaeology. If they can't spell it, educate a friend, keep up the rockin'.
Christian Swain here with a short pause for a great cause. We believe music education for young people is an investment in a better future for all of us. If you listen to our podcasts, chances are you agree. Little Kids Rock has transformed the lives of more than 650,000 public school students by bringing music education into their schools. Little Kids Rock trains teachers in underfunded schools to teach kids the music they love. From the Beatles to Bruno Mars, Led Zeppelin to Lady Gaga, Chuck Berry to Chance the Rapper. Little Kids Rock has become a national movement to restore, expand, and innovate music education in public schools across America. Visit littlekidsrock.org and learn more about how you can help put music where it belongs, in our schools. Thank you, and let's keep up the rockin' right into the next generation. Deeper Digs in Rocks, produced and hosted by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Please purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rnrap.com for more information. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 